Today, we welcome back David McCloskey to No Limits, a two-time author after Damascus Station and now Moscow X. And David, let me tell you, you earned a rare 50 out of 50 on the No Limits Thriller Pod scorecard in Ooh. our review of Damascus Station. <laughs> I'll take it. That's uh, That sounds like a good number and humbled and honored. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, we had a blast covering it. It took Chris a little while. I kept saying, it's one of the best books you'll ever read. It's one of the best books you'll ever read. Eventually, I said, Chris, this honestly might be one of my favorite books of all time. And he's like, okay, enough's enough. I'm going to pick it up. And and he's (laughs) glad he did. Well, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. That that means a lot. You guys read a ton of these, right? Uh, All across the sort of spy and thriller genre. So that means a lot coming from you guys. Thank you. Yeah, and you knocked it out of the park as well with Moscow X. So let me ask you, we've had a lot of times we've read a debut novel, loved it. We're so excited for the second one. It's good. But second novels are hard. Yeah, really, really hard. And we know you had a a tough time bringing this one to light. (laughs) And in the end, uh, you killed it. We loved it as well. So what did you learn writing this one? And would you agree with what we've seen as a very common across the spectrum is second novels are hard? Yeah, second novels are super hard. It's it's 100% true. Um, and I think when I started the process, you know, maybe for the best, I didn't really have an appreciation of that. But as I got further into it, and and frankly, just as I got to know more writers who were doing this, right, in the, in the spy, thriller, crime kind of space, everybody has the same story, right? Like, even people who've been around for 20 books we'll still talk about how much they hated writing their second book and how it's just, it's just hard. Um, the first book is kind of on your own schedule. You're, you know, you're the one in charge of the story. It's probably something that's been floating around in your head for a while. And then the second book is kind of like, there's typically more of a schedule. There's expectation, right? Like if, if your debut has done reasonably well, then it's like, okay, you've got a modest readership. How do you, how do you kind of put lighting in a bottle again? Right. Um, And so you're writing the book with that shadow over you, that monkey on your back the whole time. And I got to tell you, it sucks, right? It's not fun. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but you, you know, I, I think as I was working on Moscow X, I just, I, you know, I had this feeling of like, I've just gotta, you gotta push through that. Right. I mean, and, and, and there's a great, um, I think it's a Norman Mailer line where he's talking about writer's block and, you know, it's, it's related to, it's sort of a, a version of this, but, you know, he said, writer's block is just a failure of ego. And I think there's something to like, just, willing it into existence and pushing the thing out even when it doesn't want to be born and that's the way it felt with moscow x through and through i mean it it started as a very different story i threw something away three months in restarted and then from there it was rough you know so it was just it was not an easy book to write damascus station was in many respects just a more fluid writing experience because so much of it had been building up for so long Hmm. That's interesting because I was going to say a lot of your characters are very headstrong, uh, stubborn, or or it's almost this battle of wills sometimes 
between these characters, it seems like your writing process in this one particularly kind of kind of channeled uh, some of the energies that that your characters have in breaking down walls and just having to plow through. <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably something to that. I mean, subconsciously, I'm trying to figure out how to get to the next bit of the story or figure out where I'm going. And, you know, I mean, look, I, I think with Moscow X and it was, it was also true with Damascus station, but I think to a lesser degree, you know, I don't write these things knowing where I'm going. I'm just doing it foot by foot and inch by inch. And so I think the characters are kind of doing the same thing, you know, um, as a result. And I don't know what kind of, weird interplay is going on there between between me and the people in the books but uh, yeah i think there's something to that you know i'm sort of seeing the story five feet at a time and i think you know characters are also trying to find their way through whatever complications have been put in front of them in that same way yeah and i said this about your first book and it totally comes true here in moscow x is you create this ensemble of characters that it's almost like, you know, when a show is an ensemble show, like a TV show, like a parenthood or something, it's really about a cast and a mm -hmm. wide cast and and trying to capture, an, you know, an American family or a sports team or you're really trying to get all the personalities onto that page or onto that screen. I feel like you create these ensemble, this cast of characters and talking about the transition and coming into the second book storming. Spoiler warning here, guys, we're going to talk spoilers about this book the whole time. Proctor jumps right off the page in that opening scene. Yeah. What a smart move. And I know you talked with us earlier about how you're going to keep her around. What was it like getting to continue writing her, have her really break out in this book? And you decided to do that right in the beginning with what I'll call a, a pretty jaw dropping. scene. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that scene is fun. I debated over and over again, whether it was too much to include up front. I just decided to go with it. Perfect. Um, Perfect. Even if some, even if some readers will sort of, you know, potentially have to wipe their own jaws off the floor uh, after getting through it. Look, I, you know, she is one of those characters that really kind of creates her own reality and who has her own energy. And as a as a writer, boy, it's a relief to get a character like that where I can start a scene with her and you just kind of don't know what's going to happen. You know. Yeah. And that that opening is very much like that. Now, I will tell you candidly that in both books now, I've rewritten the opening probably a half dozen times. Wow, so it didn't okay. start like that wasn't the sort of seed that got the whole thing going. It was a realization maybe halfway through the writing process that the opening I had previously had, it was wrong and it had to be this and it had to be Proctor and it should be Proctor just kind of immediately let's get the stakes high. Yeah. And let's draw you in with a scene that's, you know, tense and physical and really evocative of her character. And I find her, I think from, you know, for me as a writer, like if you're on board with her, you're probably going to be on board with the book. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and if not, then you probably won't like it, you know? So that opening scene is probably a pretty good bellwether of like, are you in or, you know, or is this book not for you? You know? And even, even better if you knew her from Damascus station and right. wanted more. even better. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you don't have to read Damascus station to read no, this book. Cause there no. are very few references to it, but there's a continuity here. I think with her character becoming, I hope kind of more develop rich, full, 
you know, between the two novels because yeah. she does have more space in this one. Yeah, when you when you opened with her, and I'm like, oh my god, is is this book about her being taken? Uh, was she raped? I'm like, this could be just earth shattering things, and then all of a sudden she wakes up and just cracks that bottle and and shoves <laughs> it into him and like goes ham on the guy. I'm like, okay, yeah, never mind. This is Proctor being Proctor. We don't have to That's worry right. about her being That's taken right. or in a vulnerable position for very long. That's right. Yeah, she finds her way. Yeah, She's sure. resourceful and intelligent and savvy and, you know, insane and deranged and all those things. Oh, and then you you pretty much end the book with another Proctor just bomb of a scene when she takes her shirt off <laughs> at the meeting. Yeah. Oh my god, with the who is it the security council or um with that? <laughs> yeah, she's on there. she's with on a That's right. Yeah, she's on a uh, secure <laughs> video teleconference call with uh the national security advisor and and the president and the deputy director of the CIA and you know she's not now for the listeners here she's not flashing the front she is she's right. showing <laughs> tattoos on on her back to make a point around the sort of sacrifice that has been made to get this far in the operation and you know in um in both novels now she's had scenes where that sort of happened and the the stars that are tattooed on her back have a particular significance for her that I think you know and hope that's that's meaningful for readers if they they make it that far into the novel if they make it through the first chapter to keep going. Oh, the stars are iconic, and when <laughs> you pull that out, it's almost like I I wanted it and I needed it yeah. in this book. I wanted her to use that, and then another one in that meeting is Ed Bradley, the deputy director. And we saw him in Damascus Station. And actually, something I said to Chris when we reviewed that book was, I kind of want more of him. Like, mm. even if he's got to play a boring role, it's it's kind of like going to give Proctor the cover to do what she needs to yeah. do. He's an enabler. He's an enabler of Proctor. But you we know, want he's kinda, that. <laughs> yeah, you do want that. You want that. You kind of need it. It And it's, it's a kind of a time-tested... A trope makes it sound cheap, but I, I don't mean it that way in the genre, right? Like mm -hmm. you have to have the authority figure who gives you cover. In interesting enough, but who gives you cover, right? Like Gabriel Alon in the Daniel Silva series has Ari Shamron. He'll go and he'll have a conversation with Shamron and then sort of like everything's approved and fine, you know? And I was actually just rereading um, uh, John Le Carre's Smiley's People, which is the third book in the Carla trilogy. And there's a scene with uh, Smiley and Saul Enderby, who's taken over as the chief of the circus after Smiley leaves. And it's the same structure. You know, I mean, Le Carre is doing it a little bit differently, but it's kind of like you have the character who's driving the drama in the book who shows up at the doorstep of the person who needs to approve it to make it all OK. You know, yep. it's kind of crazy how the books you know we're talking about 40 years 50 years later and that that's still alive and well in the genre you kind of need it yeah it's not a trope it's almost a cornerstone you know yeah i think the trope is something that's you know cheap or it's a device that gets you out of something tricky but that's one where i feel like if proctor's doing the crazy shit she's gonna do and her plans for moscow x they're they're never gonna see the light of day yet right. if you need somebody who could balance the I'm high up enough with enough of the experience, the street cred in with the boys club, but I'm also willing to take a bet on someone batshit crazy. And like, if you combine those two, then you've got a chance for this to happen. I feel like it adds that realism, which 
is an absolute hallmark of your book so far. That's right. Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And yeah, trope is kind of the wrong word. I just mean it as like it's sort of a convention, you know, in the genre of like a book. Is yeah. yeah, it's going to have this. You know, every, everybody's kind of you kind of have to do it for it to for the plot, the narrative to hold together logically. You know, right. right. Well, that's done just uh, perfectly well. Makes it very authentic. Same way Damascus Station was. So at this point, it's only two books, but I've heard that you've got the third one in the works, which I want to come back to at the end. So at this point, I have a very clear, I think, couple of things on this list. But what would you put on a list of what makes a McCloskey novel a McCloskey novel? (laughs) Do you feel like you have that developing style already just two books in? Because I very clearly think you've established it. Well, maybe you should tell me first. I don't know. I mean, I, um, I, I feel like, um, I feel like as I'm writing, I'm generally trying. I, I don't know what the answer is. Sort of backward looking. Mm-hmm. You should tell me. I'd be curious for your thoughts on it. But I know as I'm writing, I'm generally trying to do. Uh, first and foremost, I, I'm really trying to be as authentic to character as possible and let that be kind of the guiding light of the story. And it doesn't mean one character to your point. It's these books have been more ensemble, but you know, I'm I'm trying whether it's a Russian intelligence officer, a Syrian intelligence officer, a CIA officer, you know, a Syrian palace. Like I'm trying to be as authentic to those characters as I can and listen to that voice. I'm trying to do some justice to the work of CIA, tradecraft, ethos, culture, all that kind of stuff, and make the books as realistic as possible without cutting too many corners. And then I think I'm generally trying to be authentic to place, to setting. So, you know, I'm I'm trying to bring you the reader into Damascus. I'm trying to bring you the reader into Putin's Russia. You know, in in the third book, I'm trying to bring you the reader into the kind of the world of upper crust CIA and what that would look like if there were potentially a traitor in, in their midst, you know, like those are all scenarios that are, you know, well, not scenarios. Those are all settings that are real, could be real. I'm trying to bring that to life. I think that those are sort of generally what I'm trying to accomplish in, in the books. And, you know, we'll see if, we'll see if it works for sure. Yeah. That's, that's where I was that sense of realism. uh, Like you said, characters, character driven character forward. And I think it's driven by the relationship between characters. I mean, the way that's done with Anna and Sia here is masterful, like uh, Samuel Joseph and Mariam. So I feel like it's character driven. It's relationship driven, which allows you to do something really unique. And, And to actually go back and caveat here, Chris and I debated our 50 out of 50 score. That was my score. I gave it. But his argument was. We read thriller novels, you know, a la Vince Flynn, Brad Thor, and that style, Jack Carr, which are much more action-driven. Yeah, for sure. And your books are more suspense-driven. And I had argued for our action score because we had to, we had to come up with a, a number. Out of I know time. you do. I'm actually kind of I'm I'm curious about that because it's not. Yep. Compared to those other writers you just cited, there's significantly less stuff blowing up and less, you know. Right. Everything. But that there's so much value in that because he had to dock at a point. So I think he ended up at a 49 or 48. And I said, totally viable if we're going to use the genre that we typically, you know, our podcast is focused on or pigeonholed onto. 
But since you brought up Le, Le Carre, I was like, if you're borrowing from and you're you're kind of recreating or, or you're mimicking the British spy fiction or these slow burns, it's amazing that you're doing that without action, yet creating more suspense than a shoot 'em up scene or a nuke is about mm. to go off. The suspense of is he going to get caught on the SDR or is Anna going to break or were one of these cameras yeah. listening to her clicking shift space control left right are they going to figure out that she has a device and and they're communicating the suspense you build in those small moments is actually massive and to me doesn't need action and so it's almost like you're you're breaching into a different genre than our podcast typically covers and for that mm. to me i put action slash suspense though that's not yeah. our typical guidelines for scoring I said that deserves a 10 out of 10 because, I mean, Samuel Joseph, I remember one time he left a camera in a store so he can double back and see <laughs> if anyone's following to throw him up on the S, throw him off on the SDR. I'm on the edge of my seat reading that. And <laughs> and here I am with Anna and Sia freaking out, trying to console each other about who's going to get caught and revealing details to each other. Edge of my seat stuff. Do you consider that action? I do. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, uh, I think that, for me, whether or not I'm invested in a story comes down to whether I care about what's going to happen to a character or right. I find that character interesting or like, Agreed. so, so the stakes, at least like, and look, I, I start with a foundational kind of premise as I'm writing, which is I'm trying to write something that I want on my own nightstand. Like that's all I'm trying to do. So I'm writing a book for me, really. And and the books that I like the most do a really good job, I think, of of connecting whatever sort of high concept suspense is going on or action is going on in the novel directly to character. Yes, you know, yep. one like directly. Yep. So the characters' stakes are the plot stakes, and vice versa. If you have a like sort of disconnected, hey, the world's about to blow up but your character is sort of two or three steps removed from that, or it's just hanging out. Like it, it's not going to drive me forward in the book. Like the character has to sort of be intimately connected. And so I, I'm always trying in the books to make that tension just feel extremely palpable and real for the character to put them in awful, awful spots and and for you as the reader, hopefully, if you've gone that far, right, or if you're reading, continuing through the book, hopefully you care, right? Yeah. And so you're going to keep flipping the pages. I, I think that's brilliant because that is sometimes the opposite of some author's approach of, oh, it's a little boring, so I need a massive action scene where something blows up and my cliffhanger is, did they live or did they die? And right, I don't find that as gripping. We're here. Let's think about Goose and the money being moved and like showing up to the bank. I'm kind of less concerned about oligarchs moving money around and like that kind of thing. But what I'm really interested in is how it's going to affect the right. Anna's family, right? Like how they're going to be impacted or even taking down the oligarchs in this really high level plot of Proctor wanting to launch this witch hunt, fake witch hunt and bring down Putin's inner circle, even though, you know, they are loyal to him. I love that, but I love it because I want to see Proctor win. And when she yeah. gets to celebrate that at that's the right. end, that's that's what hits. Not the fact that it was successful and the thing happened, but getting to see the characters respond to it is just delightful. And that's a testament to 
I think a style or a voice that you've created in the writing. Oh, well, th- thank you. No, I, I appreciate that. I think that the, it, it, it really all does come back to character. I mean, you could have something that is seemingly lowish stakes. I mean, let me say it a little differently. If you have, for me, both books now have been structurally around the same where there's a bit of a hockey stick about two thirds of the way through where things really start to accelerate Mm -hmm. and plow forward. And it becomes, I think more fast paced. There's more action in the back third of the book. I haven't started with that structure in mind. It's just sort of what's happened. But as I've reflected on it, I think it probably reflects the fact that for me, I tend to care a lot more about that kind of action after Mm -hmm. I've gotten to know the character. Right. If 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 I start a story and it's like immediately action, that can work, right? Absolutely. I just don't care about the characters yet. Right. So so for me, I'm probably more likely to care about that kind of action if it's set later in the novel. You did that here. You took the time early yeah. on in the novel. Yeah. And maybe too much time. I think a lot of readers would probably say, hey, look. It wasn't moving fast enough early. I'm not as, in, you know, get me going or whatever. But I think it's just, you know, it's a it's a personal thing, right? right. For, for me as a reader and I think as a writer, um, I'm looking for that slower burn so that at the end, I feel like I'm more invested, more interested, and, and you know, probably more curious, right, about what's actually going to happen. Yeah, we spent a lot of time with Sia and Anna and then eventually pairing them up with Max and Vadim. And I almost felt like I knew them really well. So when they all became pawns in a greater scheme or they all had enemies who became a lot more. I I, I feared um, what was Goose's right hand? Uh, Cherka, um, Chernov, Chernov. Chernov. Yeah, uh, yeah. All the Russian names blend together. I, I see one and I. I have like six other (laughs) russian names bouncing around my head i just interchange with i I feel like when those villains you really start to fear them is after you care about the characters enough because when when chernov went in to take the money i'm like okay powerful guy threatens a banker takes the money great but then later on yeah when he shows up i'm like oh crap this is over so and then that goes to another one so we kind of gave the whole holistic view or the 5,000 foot approach of a McCloskey novel. A few specifics though, that I feel like at this point I've seen, you got to be behind enemy lines. Yeah. I mean, I love that part of your writing, the romance there's, there's always going to be some passionate romance scenes (laughs) Uh, that came back again. So you got female lead characters that happened again in this book. Was that a conscious decision that you were going to bring another relationship into this the passion the romance and and lead with female characters again or did that just happen by nature of the story it just happened yeah okay i um i didn't i didn't start thinking that i just kind of started writing different characters and i when i when i start a book i'm typically trying to find the i'm trying to find that character's voice you know and there's a lot of experimentation that goes into that, a, a lot of false starts that go into that, but you're sort of getting to know a character and you're trying to figure out if, if there's life there, if there's energy there. 
and if they can help to propel a story. And so I'm not starting like saying, hey, I'm going to have female characters, you know, at all. Um, that's just kind of how how it came out and and where I felt like, like it's like I'm writing and it's like, okay, see ya. Like, I like this character. This is interesting. I'm getting to know her. I think she can drive part of the story. I mean, Proctor was sort of an obvious carry over from Damascus Station. And, and then Anna, I think, you know, for my money, sort of her book in a lot of ways, right? The, the, the emotional spine, I think, of the novel is probably, and it's an ensemble cast, so it's a little bit of a complicated, you know, point to make. But, like, really this is about how is she going to get hers, you know? In, in a world of just sort of incredible contradictory forces that are pushing on her, right? How is she going to come out? I think for me, it was like, okay, she became extremely interesting. The more, the more difficulty I put into her world, she became a more interesting character. And then I'm just running with that. Yeah, so it never started like, yeah, exactly. And it didn't start as saying, okay, I'm going to write a, a novel about Anna and Sia. They, they just kind of became the the lifeblood of the novel along with Proctor. And then from there, I'm like, okay, well, this is how it's right. This is how it's come out. So I'm just going to write that. And it kind of ended up in a similar place of not knowing if your yeah. counterpart made it through the other side. I remember really enjoying the ending of Damascus station for that reason, when they were able to communicate in the, in the yeah. back channels and here again, how much do Proctor and Sia and Max and crew know what Anna's up to on the other side that was a cool way to kind of let things be at the end. It it doesn't need to be the happy ending, right? They they find each other yeah. and they they have the moment and they all of a sudden you know high five and move on. It's more of this real life. You're left in the dark. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And again, definitely not a conscious decision and didn't start as some kind of top down thing. That's like this is my philosophy on life or whatever. It just it felt like. Um, it it felt like it it was authentic to the story, right? To leave it there with with some level of ambiguity, you know. I I, I love, and I you know, I, I was telling you, I was just rereading Smiley's People. You know, the last line of that book is, you know, Smiley is basically told by one of his colleagues, Peter Gwillem. He's like, "Oh, George, you won," and smiley's line is like yes yes i i suppose i did Ooh. you know and there's like a level of like he's like I, I, at first blush you're like well that's kind of a weird way to end it but then you're like it's kind of perfect because i like that we're kind of like yeah you did but there it's not you know it's not the mission accomplished kind of thing it's right. it's different from that and to me i think there's something real about the way most of life goes down, yes. right? Where yeah. it's just yeah. not, it's just not that clear. Not the happily right? ever after. It's not the happily ever after. It's it's not all dark. It's kind of a mixture of both. Even you know? when you win, did you win? That's right. Yeah. Did you win? What was the cost of it? You know, cost? all that kind You're of right. stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm glad like Ray keeps coming up because I love Tinker Tailor Soldier. I've heard you say that's been an uh, important work for you as as a writer. We are also covering this month because we have a book club where Chris and I are are doing uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. 
Oh, cool. And that kind of not knowing what's going on in the background or even having the main drama not be action, but being Mm -hmm. suspense based on personal characters. Great novel. And we were torn rating that one as well. Same way as we were (laughs) with yours. Action versus suspense. We're on the edge of our seat. But essentially, it's one long interview, if you will, or 75% of the book is just a debriefing. Well, we're on the edge of the seat of like, is he going to get caught? telling a detail wrong we don't even know right this character control is fascinating to me and control comes up in in most of the carla and smiley books is that right yeah Um, he's in i think he um i think he's dead he's dead in tinker taylor beginning of tinker Tinker taylor Taylor, and then but he but he's in it a lot because that book is it's a mole hunt so it's backward looking exactly exactly so he plays a driving force and chris and i were trying to figure out smiley's role in that book and i don't want to get into the weeds here but the same way we're saying things are unclear control says this very strange smiley's not on board with this plan but then smiley shows up and gives the card to the woman and inserts himself and we're like i think smiley masterminded the whole damn thing and i don't know the later books but anyway those dynamics between control and smiley kind of making me think of all the puppet masters you have in your book yeah it's Goose and Chernov on the, the villain side, whether it's Bradley having to go through the channels of the higher ups in U.S. government or even the money in the background. I feel like this idea of Puppet Master, whose plan is really being executed, that comes through in some of your writing, would you say? No, I think I think so for sure. And I also think it's um, it's probably reflective a little bit of, look, I mean, in an actual CIA operation – there's so many people involved, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it would be impossible to do that effectively in a novel because you would just dilute all the character so much. But in my books, I think I'm trying to to sort of balance the reality, which is probably unsuitable for fiction, with the way a lot of fiction in the genre happens, which is it gets so narrowed down to like one person or two mm-hmm. people that you lose a little bit of the bureaucratic tethering, right? right? Which can be quite entertaining, right? Like, um, it's not a knock on that stuff. Like, But for me, I'm more comfortable kind of swimming in a world where, okay, well, you know, these officers are are part of the real CIA bureaucracy, and there's like a tether between the field and headquarters and, and, you know, the people who are actually doing the work and then the higher-ups. And it's kind of an interesting... um, situation to find yourself in i think from a even a moral or ethical standpoint because it is like by the time it's done it's not just one person right it's it's a whole entity it's a bunch of people it's a lot of people who could have said like hey you know not me it was these other people so i think that creates some interesting dynamics you know it's like it's proctor proctor's vision largely in moscow x but there's also a whole like there's a whole system behind her right kind of moving this way you know i think so all how the do bitcoin you, you know yeah, so many other exactly. people had to be involved in risking right i think one guy risked like 200 million yeah a lot yeah. of a lot of cooks in that kitchen that's right that's right and i think for me that's i don't know i find that stuff fascinating and so i just tend to kind of go that way in the writing it's like embrace a little bit of the complexity and all yeah. that you know it just made me think when you win, did you really win? Like Proctor at the end is able to delight in what she did to Putin's inner circle, but she didn't know Luca. 
right? Like she didn't know right. the sacrifice that was made and what people lost to get there. You know, the fact that the horse, you know, Penelope was traded away and is now living in this foreign place with these foreign <laughs> people who they come to love. But just so many people had to give so much for her to have that moment. And she gets it, right? Like that's what the tattoos are, are a testament to, that she gets it. She values the people under her. But she still has to play hard ass. She still has to stick to collect the intelligent, yeah. run the agent. So she's almost just a great character of that puppet master pulling strings in the background. But it's so personal. And when she's in your corner, there's no one better in your corner. It's like that really tough boss who rides your ass. Oh, but you for go, sure. You yeah. can go home from work every day and say, I am better for it. Like, that's leadership. Yeah, that's right. And she's kind of got this, you know, I think she definitely has it's better to be feared than to be loved. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, mentality. But loving in her own way. Right. And she does have friends. Like, you know, the, the, she's loyal to her, her people. Yeah. And she's a competent operator and she's the kind of person, you know, I think for me, as I'm writing her, thinking about her, she's the kind of person where you're like, you kind of wish this person existed, you know, yeah. And, yeah. in some them. way, shape or form. Like, yeah, we could use this person. Uh, <clears throat> and, and so as I'm thinking about her, what she wants, which, you know, I'm always kind of thinking about what's that, what's that conversation I have with the case officer on a topic where they're like, Hey, I wish we could have done this, you know? Mm. that's proctor you know and she's the one who's trying to make it happen yeah yeah and a lot of times the books we read on the podcast everyone goes and it's just everybody on social media does it oh we really need a mitch rap out there i hope we have the scott harvath's defending (laughs) our country and sometimes i'm like yeah sure great you know like like we got the people like the spec ops people like don't we also want the people at a desk who are damn good at being at a desk <laughs> and actually still having a heart, at, you know? Yeah. Like instead, and that was a like Ray. One of my favorite quotes is a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. Yet the people doing the work at the desks are often the decision makers who put the spec ops people and everyone else on the line in precarious situations. So what we really need is the people at the desk to be the ones like Bradley and Proctor. And so while we want Mitch Raps and Harveths, they're no good without the Irene Kennedy or, you know, the, the people behind the scenes. Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on. And I think you know, I got the quote right. I hope I didn't butcher like Ray there. No, it felt it felt close. It felt close to me. I don't think you did. I mean, I think that uh it's kind of both and, right? You kind of need mm. you kind of hope, right? In some in some world that you've got courageous people who are doing the work of intelligence officers, courageous spec up, you know, right. folks. So like it's, a, it's yeah, they're working together. You know, you, you, you hope that you wish that. And I think that's why a lot of this fiction works is because you kind of look at that and say, Oh, this is interesting and, and exciting. Cause you know, I kind of want these people to be out there. Right. Yeah. Yep. So two other little, uh, what makes a McCloskey book, a McCloskey book. And again, these, these are the, the small things, but you did it again, this little transcript scene where it's almost yeah. like a dialogue. I, when when that came up, I was like, oh, phew, great. Because I remember that happened early in Damascus Station. I thought it was cool. I was like, oh, this is going to be a hallmark of this book is this back and forth interrogation, almost script, like we're reading a transcript. Yeah. And here we get that on some of the communications uh, back and forth between the operators. Is that something you want to keep doing? It's a little nugget that I enjoyed. If it uh, no, I like it. I like it too when it when it works. Um, 
I'm trying to remember now if I have it in. I do have it in the third book. Okay. I'll be it's looking not, for it. It's not long. It's toward the end, but it's in there. Okay. And I think when it works, it's great. And I worry about overusing it. So I don't mm. ever want to, because you know what, frankly, like it kind of makes writing the scenes easier, <laughs> you know, mm. because, <clears throat> because you don't have to do any of the other work. Yeah. Right. It's fun in small doses. Yeah. You I know, yeah, yeah. Uh, but when it works, it works. And I thought, you know, I thought in Damascus station, I thought in the, in the sort of in polygraph scene with Anna, you know, and in a couple of the phone calls. Right. And I think when it works, it works actually, and this is kind of a weird way to frame it, but I think it's true. It works from the standpoint of character because you're actually viewing that scene through the lens of somebody who's not in the room. Just their words, yeah. But who's listening to it. Yeah. Like when when we're hearing, I think there, there's, so there's a scene in Damascus Station where Ali Hassan is listening to the transcript of his conversation with Proctor, where Proctor had threatened him. And it's like him and his assistant who are listening to it afterward. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that they're <clears throat> replaying it because he's recorded it, right? Yeah. And that feels like a natural entry point for that kind of thing with the character. And the same thing in Moscow X, where it's like, you have these transcripts that either the CIA or SVR have collected about CNN's conversations because they would record them. Yeah. Um, and so you're kind of coming at it through that lens. You have to you have to be judicious about it. You have to kind of think about how you set that up so that it, it makes sense from the standpoint of the narration, I think. Anyhow. Yeah. And it added a little humor because I think the Damascus Station one was the douchebag line. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Like, I I can't translate that line. He said something <laughs> about a bag. <laughs> yeah, it's a bag filled with. I think the line from his uh, his assistant is like it's a bag filled with feminine products or something yeah, like that. Something so he like kind of yeah he gets like a literal translation too, you know yeah, exactly yeah. like the google translate version but not the <laughs> that's right like that's not exactly what a native right. speaker would know yeah yeah that's exactly right because his good. assistant his assistant had like done a study abroad in like north dakota or something like that's that right. so, and he knew the word yeah, yeah yeah he knew the word that was funny <laughs> uh, yeah well you mentioned it here um and it's another mccloskeyism let's call it the tech you gotta have the spy craft the surveillance the tech you had a device uh, this time around, or I think a few times the partitioned hard drive. Yeah. Now, I asked you this last time, how much of this is getting into real life operations? I know you don't want to divulge too much, but it sounds like this is a reasonable thing that must be out there. Oh, yeah, it's 100% out there. That, that one has to be clear. Yeah, exactly. That's Yeah, that's, a, that's 100%. That's a very um, simple one. What about the other surveillance it, techniques and things? I mean, honestly, most of it's out there. You know, I um, I did sprinkle some pixie dust when I was getting into how the CIA creates sort of an image copy of Vadim's computer, mm. which I think I'm not even sure. I'm not sure it's technically possible. It's close enough to being possible. And also, like, as I was writing it, I'm like, this is kind of like this is too much. You know, mm. this is the kind of thing where people are going to their eyes are going to glaze over. And they're not oh, and the care. QR code thing was interesting. The, Q, the QR code thing. It's real. I mean, you got to like I got in a number of conversations I've had with former agency folks. You know, they're sort of like 
don't scan QR codes ever, you know, period. Yeah. How different is it from clicking a link? It's, it's almost the exact same thing. I think it's the same. Yeah, exactly. So when you're like, and again, odds of this low, but yeah, if you're, it would conceivably be just as easy for someone to put a random, like put down the wrong QR code or whatever on a restaurant menu. Create spyware. Yeah. And and get access to your phone that way because you're essentially clicking. Right. Remember the Super Bowl commercial? Wasn't it also Bitcoin or something? During the Super Bowl, they just did a QR code that bounced around. Oh, really? Re- it it literally was a blank screen with a QR code bouncing around for 45 seconds. And they paid <laughs> however many millions of dollars. And I think I think it ended up being something about buying buying uh cryptocurrency or whatever, but <laughs> They could have well, been putting it, spyware on millions. Right? Yeah. Millions oh, of exactly. Homes. And and that's kind of the thing is like, who put the QR code there? Right? Yeah. Like, where am I? You know. So <clears throat> there's all this stuff that you know you have these conversations with folks. It's like it makes you really paranoid. Damn. And probably and probably rightly rightly so. Yeah. I think um, you know, for for me, this book from a tradecraft standpoint. You know, Damascus Station was all sort of conventional out of embassy operations. You've got the case officer who's under diplomatic cover. Right. In many respects, it's kind of a Cold War era spy novel, right? It's not. It's set in 2011, 2012, 2013. But like the techniques are like, that's like, that's not how it's happening anymore. Really. Right. right. And, it, and it's a relatively new phenomenon that's been the last 10 or so years of a complete revolution in the way human intelligence is is gathered because of these changes that have happened in the tech environment that sort of fall under this umbrella of like ubiquitous technical surveillance or UTS, right? The old tradecraft would have not guaranteed you, but would have given you a chance at real anonymity for a period of time where you would have needed it. Real clandestine behavior for two minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, depending on, you know, where you are. It just doesn't exist anymore. That's gone. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty much gone. And so the way, the way you create that now is, you know, really by using officers, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's creating this kind of increasing distance between the actual CIA and, and the asset who's giving the CIA information. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, Max and and Sia and, and Anna on the Russian side, they're all knocks, right? Officers under non-official cover. The Russians have a different name for it. They'll call it the apparatus of attached employees, you know, who are working in enterprise, in commerce, whatever, but actually work for SVR. Yeah. Like keeping that kind of arm's length distance from the actual operation is increasingly a necessity in a world where, like, how are you gonna get a supposed u.s diplomat in front of a russian intelligence officer in russia like the you know the risk of that is has always been so high <clears throat> and now it's like it's almost impossible i'm trying to capture that in the novel and and kind of deal with that realistically from a tradecraft yeah. tech standpoint no that comes through i'm wondering how much the chinese are doing that here i just have a feeling and chris and i've said this over and over for some reason we think a lot of thriller novels spy novels recently shied away from china oh you probably have some good examples but we just haven't come across too many that are willing to wade into it and what you hear about you know uh, uh, the university systems and dumping money into that or farmland in rural america particularly around certain bases and 
uh, even ports, international port cities and development in sub-Saharan Africa. I feel like there's so much of the genre, what you're talking about, and the human in- intel side, even signal intelligence, that we can dig into China. And I don't know why, I just haven't read that many novels willing to go there. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because and this is kind of right in my headspace now because I've been debating what the fourth novel will be about and where it will be set and have been toying around with the China concept. It's true that there aren't many, there just actually aren't that many spy novels that really take China as its setting. You know, yeah, you've got, exactly. this is not exhaustive, but you know, the honorable Schoolboy, which is the second um, Carla trilogy novel. Part of it takes place in Hong Kong. Uh, you got the Shanghai Factor, Charles McCary, which is a great, great novel. Typhoon by Charles Cumming. You've got oh, the the uh, the Night Heron trilogy by a guy named Adam Brooks mm. is phenomenal. Deals very authentically with China. I believe he was a former BBC reporter in Beijing. He's a Brit. Mm. So there's like a small canon of books that do it well, but I think. It's a tough nut to crack in large part because I think in the American consciousness, like we don't grow up learning about Chinese history. Mm. There's not a lot of like, I mean, there's, there's, there are very few Americans now who are spending any time in China. Right. And it's, I think really hard for us to have some, imagination about what the place is like it's just like yeah. a black box like we grew up on we we get middle eastern history exactly we get european history russia we get the whole cold war, war russia yep you know berlin um germany stuff. right you get all that kind of stuff yeah but, but like the idea of like a china book yeah you know i've talked i've spoken and i won't say names i've spoken with a, a number of authors who've done china books and they will be like don't do it yeah you know, because it's just yeah. commercially like people aren't as interested. Like people don't want to pick it up. I don't know. It's tough because it's because yeah. it's it's the equivalent now of if like Le Carre wasn't writing about Russia back in the 70s and 80s. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I think someone recently who tried to do it in this genre that, that we cover was Brad Thor with Rising Tiger. Uh, but that one was India. And it was kind of cool because. Yeah, it had a little bit of India and China both back and forth, but we wanted a little more of the China. Yet he he focused most on India, hence the name Rising Tiger. But um, it it breached a little bit like the South China Sea stuff, Taiwan. I feel like we're so much more likely to hear a book about even before this current conflict, like Ukraine or Russian breakaway states or right or right. Arab states in the Middle East or something. And it's just like I just want to I just want to see something. Yet I haven't found a book that really goes into it as much as I'd like. I think if you, I mean, if you wanted something that does China well, I would do the Adam Brooks trilogy. It starts with Night Heron. Night Heron. That, those right, are good very good books that deal realistically, very realistically with, with China. Another good one is uh, China Hand by a guy named Scott Spacek. S-P-A-C-E-K. Um those are great books. They deal realistically with China. And I think they just for, you know, and, and it's, it's mm. no fault of their own. I just think they haven't sort of leapt into the consciousness of the genre. Like if you're, yeah. if you're in the genre, 
you know, but it's not, it's not sort of, it's not out it there. It hasn't caught on more broadly. Yeah. You know, it's not out there. Well, David, this has been great talking to you. I just want to ask you horses. I, I'd be, I'd be wrong <laughs> to not bring it up. Oh, you took us deep into the world of horse breeding, horse training, and are the global elites really doing this? Finding industries, <laughs> big money industries like that, and hiding, shuffling money. They are okay. Oh, abs- absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, the horse stuff was kind of a like a fun and also just maddening, yeah, rabbit hole for me because I I was trying to come up with a way that it would make sense for there to be this back and forth, right, between the CIA, between Russia. How would I get people to be spending time together and? I got to this point where I said, you know, like great place to recruit somebody, great place to have a lot of conversations on horseback, right? You're out yeah. there, you potentially don't have a phone with you. You're just kind of cruising, right? A lot of time together. Unfortunately, that meant I had to do a absolute ton of of research on horses. I'm looking at a shelf here that's over behind me and it's like stocked with these horse books that I read and I spent a ton of time out on a ranch in West Texas with a guy okay. who, used to run a Kentucky big Kentucky thoroughbred operation for a long time. I was wondering if that was natural, like your hobby, you were a horse guy or not. No, it's not my hobby. It's not my hobby. I've gotten like, obviously spent a lot of time, you know, making it an interest and, and learning a lot about it, but I did not like, this was not a thing of mine or like, how do I get this into a book? It sort of happened. And then I think I woke up one day and I was like, Oh shit, you know, I've got (laughs) to figure out everything about horses. Like I gotta be a horse guy. Why does fiction work this way? Yeah, exactly. That's funny. That's great. Well, it's been a blast talking with you. We love this book. Absolutely love Damascus station. I stand by it when I say one of my favorite books I've read of all time, I will push it to everyone that I know who's a reader. Tell us about the seventh floor. I'm really excited because the concept of this sounds great. Let the audience know what's coming. Is it next year? 24? Next year. Or? Next next fall of 24. Great. Yeah, okay, fall of 24. Good. Good. So it'll be out. My guess is, you know, there's a little bit of uncertainty with like the election stuff and all that. I, I think probably in October. Like, so, you know, probably a year out from Moscow X. Great. And yeah, it is uh it is very much an Artemis Proctor book. So all right. It, Yes, uh, she is back. Sam Joseph is back from oh, the Damascus okay. Station, and uh, it's a mole hunt. It's a bit of a modern homage to Tinker Taylor, Soldier Great. Spy, which we've been talking about. And uh, Proctor and Sam become convinced that there's a a, a very well placed Russian mole on the seventh floor of CIA. That's the executive floor, and they've got to invest, basically investigate like Proctor's some of Proctor's. Uh, you know, closest friends and uh, most cherished enemies. Wow! To uh, to figure out who it is. So that's that's the book. I'm I'm excited about it. There's a whole bunch of twists and turns along the way. It's uh, a bit of a you know, there's there's real kind of mole hunt stuff in here. How do you investigate? How do you look back into the past and try to figure out who's rotten now? And then there's also some crazy stuff that happens along the way. And and uh, Proctor, you know, she, I think, really, really gets to know her in a different way in this book, which I'm excited about. Love that you have sufficiently teased us. We look (laughs) forward to having you back on the podcast. Really got to say thank you for joining us once again. And sorry I missed you when you were down here in my neck of the woods in uh, Northwest D.C. How'd that go at Politics and Prose? You know, it was fun. Uh, David Ignatius did a great job. 
you know, with tons of great questions Good. about the book and we had, we just had a great time. So it was, it was a ton of fun, but yes, uh, sad to miss. And hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, we'll be back there great. next fall for the, for the seventh floor. Cool. So next time you're in DC next love time, to, love to catch up. That's with right. You. Likewise. Likewise. Thanks a lot, David. Really appreciate it. Always fun hanging out with you. Hey, likewise. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it.